Today's episode of Hidden Forces is made possible by listeners like you. For more information about this week's episode or for easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you listen to the show on your Apple Podcast app, remember, you can give us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our amazing community. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. What's up, everybody? My guest on this episode of Hidden Forces is Ian Easton, Senior Director at the Project 2049 Institute, where he conducts research on defense and security issues in Asia. He is also the author of The Chinese Invasion Threat, Taiwan's Defense and American Strategy in Asia. The Taiwan Strait is one of the most dangerous flashpoints on Earth and the island of Taiwan sits right in the middle of one of the busiest maritime sea and air routes in the world. It is situated at the very center of what is known as the first island chain, stretching from as far south as Vietnam and Indonesia, all the way up through the Philippines and north of Japan, giving it unique strategic and commercial significance as a gateway to the Pacific. In this two-hour-long conversation, Ian provides us with an extraordinary overview of the island's history, its strategic, commercial, and political significance, and what an invasion of Taiwan would mean for the United States, for its allies, and for the world. It's an episode you won't want to miss. I promise. And with that, please enjoy this timely conversation with my guest, Ian Easton. Ian, welcome to Hidden Forces. Dimitri, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So where are you located for our listeners? I'm located in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington. And how long have you been at the 2049 Institute? Well, I first joined as a non-resident affiliate in 2009. And the reason I was non-resident is I was just out of grad school and I was living in Taiwan at the time. I was a translator by day for a software company, but my real passion was in issues like the one that we're gonna be talking about today. And uh, they brought me aboard to do some research for them. And then within about two years, that evolved into a full-time position. And so I moved from Taiwan here to Arlington. So how did you first become interested in Taiwan? Like where did you get the idea to study there? Well, in a way it was kind of an accident. I grew up in the Midwest in rural Illinois, a small town, about two hour drive outside of Chicago. And where I grew up, it was it was just surrounded by a sea of cornfields and soybean fields. And so it was a pretty slow place and it was pretty boring. And so from my objective from age about 15 onwards was to study foreign languages and to go see the world. And initially I wasn't picky. I, I didn't care about where I was going to go. But I ended up, after trying a few other languages, I, I stuck with Chinese and ended up studying in China and then ended up studying in Taiwan. And the more I learned about some of these issues, the more fascinating it became. And so it ended up becoming a big part of my career. So how long did you say you lived in Taiwan for? I lived in Taiwan from 2005 until 2010. So. Uh, all in all, about four and a half years. So we're going to rely on that firsthand experience of yours and how it's informed your understanding of the island, its politics, and its relationship with the United States and China. But I think it would help first if you gave listeners a short history of Taiwan. You know, like most people, they've heard the name Taiwan. They may have heard the name Chinese Taipei if they... (laughs) watch the Olympics. But I don't think most people have an understanding of its relationship to China. You know, what is that relationship? When did Taiwan gain its independence? How do we think about its independence in the absence of international recognition? And how does that relate to US policy towards Taiwan? 
Wow. Okay. So that's a really big question. It's a really, really good question. Taiwan has a very abnormal history. And I say abnormal because it's a country that today very few other countries treat as a country. And the way that happened is that it was a Japanese colony from 1895 until 1945. It was meant to be the the site of the largest battle in World War II in the Pacific Ocean. And it was a battle plan that was canceled, actually. It was, it was called Operation Causeway. And the reason no one's ever heard of Operation Causeway, but we have heard of Operation Overlord, for example, and Operation Market Garden and some of these other operations, is because it was canceled at the last minute when the Joint Chiefs of Staff realized that it would be far too bloody and far too dangerous to carry out. And so U.S. forces in the Pacific ended up landing on the Philippines and uh, fighting there. And then the forces that were supposed to actually invade Taiwan, at the time it was called Formosa, they ended up landing on Okinawa instead. And Taiwan was blockaded. It was heavily bombed. And the Japanese forces that were there, there was about 100,000 Japanese troops garrisoning the island. Uh, they were bottled up and they, they couldn't get off and they, they couldn't create trouble for U.S. forces elsewhere, with the exception of the kamikaze pilots, which were based on Taiwan. Some of the kamikaze pilots that, that hit our forces in Okinawa. Well, at the end of the war, what happened was that the U.S. then turned that island, and actually Taiwan is more than just one island. It's one main island surrounded by 100 or so smaller islands, turned that over to the Republic of China government. That was uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist uh, government in China, in the mainland of China. Because at the time, the idea was that after World War II, there were going to be what President Roosevelt called world policemen. The United States would be one, England and France would be others, the Soviet Union would be one, and then the Republic of China, Chiang Kai-shek's government in China would be another. And each of those governments would act sort of like a, a police force. And that served as the basis, of course, ultimately for the United Nations and uh, the Security Council there. Well, what happened is that in 1949, because while all this was going on, there was a civil war being carried out in China, and it was extremely bloody and it was extremely brutal. And it was Chiang Kai-shek's forces fighting against basically a rebel group of communists under Mao Zedong. And it was a really tough insurgency. Uh, the communists, of course, were very tenacious. And they fought this uh, from 1927 all the way up until 1949. And for most of that war, most of the Chinese Civil War, the Chinese Communist Party and what later became the People's Liberation Army was actually on the back foot. They were losing throughout the entire war. Well, that all that changed in late 1948, early 1949, when they were able to achieve a series of crushing victories. I mean, they were absolutely massive crushing victories where they swept across China and they drove Chiang Kai-shek's forces back to Taiwan and back to Hainan Island to the south and to a bunch of other smaller islands off the coast of Southeast China. And what ended up happening is a stalemate. And the reason there was a stalemate, of course, was because in the summer of 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea, and President Truman decided within days that basically he wasn't going to allow the Republic of Korea government to fall, and also he was not going to allow the Republic of China government on Taiwan to fall. And so he ordered the Seventh Fleet into the Taiwan Strait to make sure Chinese communists couldn't invade Taiwan. And at the same time, of course, he ordered troops and he led the United Nations response in defense of South Korea. And what this did is it created two of the most uh, protracted stalemates in history. And those two stalemates continue to this day. And they're two of the most dangerous flashpoints to this day because they're both civil wars, both on the Korean Peninsula and in Taiwan, both civil wars that, that never concluded. And they just became uneasy stalemates. And initially going into it, unlike the U.S. approach to, for example, West Germany, East Germany, 
North Vietnam, South Vietnam, North Korea, South Korea. In this case, the United States government was told it could only recognize one of the two Chinas. And so initially it recognized Chiang Kai-shek's China, the Republic of China, on Taiwan. And it de-recognized, and it worked very hard internationally to delegitimize the communist government in China up until 1979, when the United States actually then suddenly closed its embassy in Taipei, opened a new embassy in Beijing, recognized the People's Republic of China government in mainland China, de-recognized the Republic of China government in Taiwan, and started to act like Taiwan was no longer a legitimate country. And that's created this very, I don't want to say unusual, it's more than unusual. It's a bizarre foreign policy situation. And that's one of the reasons why very few Americans have actually heard very much about Taiwan, because we don't have troops there. We don't recognize Taiwan diplomatically. And the U.S. government actually, to this day, even though Taiwan has become a thriving democracy over the past two, three decades, to this day, the United States government actually goes out of its way to pretend that Taiwan's not a real country or not a real government. And so it's a very strange history, but it's also, I think, very interesting because when you look at the modern history of U.S. foreign policy, there, there's really nothing else like this. So that was a great summary. You also mentioned a number of those frozen conflicts or flashpoints or stalemates in the international community. Those are becoming increasingly important. Of course, today we're going to be discussing the Taiwan Strait and Asia, but across the world, in the absence of the credible threat of American intervention, many of these frozen conflicts could quickly become unfrozen or hot. And that, of course, has implications for global stability, has implications for trade routes, again, bringing us to the Taiwan Strait. In 79, when, when the Carter administration um, recognized the Chinese Communist Party as the legitimate government of China and sort of delegitimized Taiwan in that sense, was that a, my first question, was that a requirement of Deng Xiaoping? Did he require that for, a, for an agreement with the United States? And then my second question is, what can you tell me and our listeners about the Taiwan Relations Act, which also was signed in 1979, and how has that informed meaningfully our relationship with Taiwan since? Well, to your first question, it was. It was something that Deng Xiaoping and before him, Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai pushed President Nixon and at the time Secretary of State Henry Kissinger on very hard. Now, Nixon and Kissinger did not agree to that. What ended up happening after the visit in 72 when sort of U.S.-China rapprochement began was that the U.S. opened up an official diplomatic post in Beijing, but it maintained its embassy in Taipei. It wasn't until the Carter administration that for a number of reasons, uh, most of them geostrategic in nature because the United States felt it was starting to lose the Cold War and the balance of power was tipping dangerously in favor of the Soviet Union and something needed to be done, that is the moment when they decided to de-recognize Taiwan and to recognize the People's Republic of China in order to try to get China on our side to basically stand with them, arm them, make sure that, that they could put pressure on the southern flank of the Soviet Union in sort of a, a way of winning back some of the initiative in the Cold War, which I think many strategists felt we were losing at the time. And so that's why that happened the way it did, as I understand it. In other words, it, it was part and parcel of our larger Cold War policy, like everything else was. at the time. It was absolutely driven by the fear of war breaking out in Europe, especially in Germany, near the Fulda Gap. Uh, that's where everybody expected it to break out, or, or perhaps in Berlin. And there was a sense, going back to the late 1940s, there was always this sense that once conflict started, it could easily spiral out of control, and neither superpower could then stop it. And it would escalate all the way up to nuclear warfare and uh, chemical and biological attacks, 
and then ultimately the world would end. And so there was this fear, I think, that that was sort of foundational for all the, the decisions that were made. And that was probably one of the things that was driving decision making when it came to Taiwan and what to do and how to balance more effectively against the Soviet Union. Because, of course, the relationship between communist China and communist Russia at the time that the USSR was very bad, that from the 1960s all the way through the 1970s, there was a tremendous amount of tension there. There was a a very drastic split that happened in 1962. And that led up to a mini border war where actually a lot of people died in 1969. So there's a lot of tension there. There was a sense in China that they could be invaded by the Soviet Union at any time. The U.S. saw this playing out and was on one hand worried that actually the Soviets could invade China and could take large chunks of it and then become even more powerful in terms of uh, our strategic competition. It would weaken us even more. But there was also a sense that there was an opportunity there, that if the United States could reach out to the PRC, if we could arm them up, if we could partner with them and make sure, not only make sure they were not invaded by the Soviet Union, but also make sure they could put pressure on the Soviet Union from the Soviet Union's weak southern flank, and that would take pressure off of our forces in Europe. And so that was... I think there was a lot of you know strategic calculation that went into it, uh, driven by the military requirements at the time. There was also a sense, I think, by many, that the two governments were equally illegitimate. That because Taiwan was a military dictatorship at the time, the Republic of China government under Chiang Kai-shek was a military dictatorship, and that that wasn't all that different than the communist government in mainland China. And so it didn't really matter who we recognized because they were, you know, from a moral perspective or an ethical perspective, they were about the same. Ironically, what happened is after we de-recognized Taiwan, it wasn't long after that Taiwan started to reform itself politically and ultimately became a flourishing democracy. I mean, Taiwan today is one of the greatest democratic success stories on the planet. I mean, Taiwan's a very liberal democracy now as a, a, a female president. Last year, they legalized gay marriage. It's just a very open, liberal, uh, democratic place. And I don't think anybody back in the 1970s or even the, the 1980s could have ever envisioned that happening the way it did. Actually, the same thing that happened with South Korea, where in South Korea, you also had a military dictatorship that then evolved and became a very successful, not only a successful economic story, but also a successful political story. And as for your earlier question about the Taiwan Relations Act, what happened is when the United States government closed its embassy in Taipei and opened a new embassy in the PRC in in 1979, there was a tremendous backlash from the U.S. Congress. And the reason there was such a backlash Partly it, was, it had to do with the China lobby, which was the Chiang Kai-shek's lobby in Congress. Of course, the ROC government had a lot of friends up on Capitol Hill. But also it had to do with this sense of, you know, Chiang Kai-shek and his government may have been bad, but they were way better than communists. Because, of course, anti-communist sentiment was very high back during the Cold War. And there was a sense that Chiang Kai-shek's government had stood with us in World War II. We had fought together against Imperial Japan. We had stood together in the Cold War. There were a number of battles that were fought essentially shoulder to shoulder during the Cold War, especially in the 1950s, and that there was this outcry from Congress that how could we sell out this country that we had fought with and that we had helped build up and that we had benefited strategically so much from over the past 20, 30 years. And I think there was also, uh, I think it's important to note that Congress was surprised. Most of the U.S. government was surprised. that The announcement came very suddenly. It was developed in secret. There was a sense that the White House was not being transparent. And of course, that really struck a raw nerve after Watergate and, and the scandals of the early 1970s. And so the U.S. Congress ended up writing what became the the Taiwan Relations Act, they passed it very quickly. And then 
President Carter, it was veto proof, and then President Carter signed it. And what the Taiwan Relations Act said, it became U.S. Law 96-8. And it said that, and I'll just read a couple quotes from it that I think that are very important for understanding our relationship with Taiwan and China today. It said that it's the policy of the United States government to, and I quote, to provide Taiwan with arms of a defensive character and to maintain the capacity of the United States to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion or intimidation that would jeopardize the security or the social or economic system of the people of Taiwan. And so what that meant, because that's a very, obviously that's very legalistic language, but what that actually meant was that the United States government was bound by law to make sure that the U.S. military would be ready to defend Taiwan, not only from a potential invasion, but also from acts of coercion, threats to its economy, threats of subversion, which is something the Chinese Communist Party was very good at. And even a potential blockade, scenarios like that, that the U.S. military and also the U.S. government more broadly had to be ready to respond to threats to Taiwan. It also said that the U.S. government had to help Taiwan maintain a credible self-defense posture. Well, arguably, Washington has not done a very good job in doing those things, but that's perhaps uh, something we could talk about a little later. But anyways, that's the story of the Taiwan Relations Act, and that's what it says, and that's what it asks of the United States government. So again, great summary and analysis. We're going to go back to the Taiwan Relations Act throughout this conversation. You also mentioned Taiwanese politics. That's clearly relevant. I wonder how much time I want to spend up front on it. But they recently, in 2016 and in 2020, had two significant elections where the DPP was elected, and now President Tsai Ing-wen is in power, and she's been much more vocal about Taiwanese independence. And when I say independence, I don't mean formal independence. I mean sort of cultural identity. And there's a kind of a stronger, it seems, nationalist message in her politics. And that seems to reflect Taiwanese society more broadly. In other words, that they, like Hong Kongers, have over time, most specifically the younger generations, developed a much more native nationalist identity separate from China. And I wonder how significant have have those recent elections been? Because for most of Taiwan's history, right, it was the the the, the nationalist party, the, the the party of Chiang Kai-shek that that ruled Taiwan. That's right. It's they've been incredibly significant. Without the DPP and this very strong opposition party that's now become the incumbent party, Taiwan wouldn't be the flourishing democracy that it is today. Because before that. There was only one party, and it was the, the KMT, or the Nationalist Party of Chiang Kai-shek. And that was essentially a, a political party built along Leninist lines. Of, it was certainly not communist in nature, but it was organized along Leninist lines. And it was very authoritarian in nature. And it wasn't until the DPP emerged in the 1980s as an opposition party and started to push back that Taiwan started to really reform itself politically. And that's something that accelerated in the 1990s, and then the DPP first won the office of the presidency in the year 2000 and held on to it for eight years, although they did not have a majority in parliament, their legislative UN, their version of Congress, which meant that a lot of their policies were slowed down. Well, then in 2008, KMT candidate uh, was elected president, and the KMT had power again for eight years. And they pushed a much more China-friendly policy. It was one that that sought to emphasize the Chinese-ness of Taiwan, Taiwanese society, Taiwanese history, and to do that in many ways, including with um, you know the textbooks that students get in middle school and high school. And there's a tremendous pushback to that because the more the people of Taiwan learned what it meant to be Chinese the more they hated the idea. And, and and I saw this actually firsthand living in Taiwan because I did graduate school in Taiwan. And I remember seminar discussions in 2006, 2007, 2008 with professors and with Taiwanese classmates who had never been to China. 
And I had been to China. I'd studied abroad in, in Shanghai, and I traveled all the way from Beijing to the Sino-Pakistan border out in Xinjiang. And so I'd seen quite a bit of, of the country, and I had a lot of stories to tell. Uh, and none of my classmates actually believed me. They had never been to China. They'd never met anybody from China. They just had this sort of romanticized idea of what it was like. And when I told them about the pollution, about the corruption, about the crackdown on human rights, and about a lot of the social problems that I witnessed when I was there, uh, it was very hard for them to believe. Well, after the KMT came back into power, this was President Zhou at the time, in 2008, he really opened up the gates and to greater cross-strait relations. And so there was a flood of business delegations and tourists visiting Taiwan from the PRC. And of course, they had not only an economic and cultural end, end goal in mind, but also very political. And so everything became very political, as you might imagine in a situation like this, because of course their objective was to actually take over Taiwan. And they were very pushy. And the more people in Taiwan got to know people from the PRC, the more tourist groups they were exposed to, the more political delegations they saw come over, and the more they saw of this aggressive push to undermine Taiwan's sovereignty, the less they liked it. And so that then there was a series of events that culminated in the, the 2016 election where the DPP swept back into power, not only winning the presidency, but also winning a majority in parliament. And after four years of being in office, then President Tsai was reelected in January of this year, in 2020, and also just won a crushing victory in parliament as well. And I think one of the reasons that happened is because people in Taiwan have seen what the Chinese Communist Party has done to Hong Kong. They've also seen mm. uh, the what's happened in Xinjiang and other places in, in the PRC. And it's really deepened their distrust for any promises made by the government in Beijing. And it's really, I think, instilled in them a sense that, that Taiwan is nothing like China, that they are an independent country, that their government has not had any administrative control over China, over the PRC for 70 years, and the PRC government has not had any administrative control over Taiwan and its island holdings for 70 years, and that it really should stay that way, and that the world should recognize Taiwan as an independent sovereign country. And so I think that there's this growing sense of nationalism and, and patriotism on Taiwan and a growing sense that their culture, that their story, that their history is really unique and really different than that of the PRC and that their future is going to be a future that they decide for themselves, that they're not going to allow them, their government to be coerced. They're not going to compromise. They're not going to surrender, that they're going to fight for the freedom and democracy that they've won and that they hope uh, the United States and other countries will, will stand with them. And so I think that's where we are today. Is the CCP's sort of standing offered to Taiwan something similar to what they've offered Hong Kong? Granted, Hong Kong is actually territorially part of China in a much more, much clearer way, but it is sort of a one country, two systems type approach, right? I mean, how much of it is looking at Hong Kong and saying, well, this was what we were sort of hoping for in the best case scenario is what they were offering Hong Kong, but that's really not, it looks like we're not going to re really be able to get that. And so public opinion has changed. That's kind of one question. And maybe you can fold that into the larger question about the DPP and if its election and public opinion in Taiwan the change in public opinion have made the Chinese Communist Party feel like they really their hope of unifying China with Taiwan peacefully feels less likely than ever to happen. Yeah, those are very, very good questions. The big difference between Hong Kong and Taiwan, of course, that that Hong Kong was never a sovereign independent country. Hong Kong was a colony of the British Empire, and then the British turned it back over to the People's Republic of China in 1997. And so it stayed, basically it stayed a colony of a foreign power. So Hong Kong has actually never enjoyed uh, true freedom and sovereignty. The, the people of Hong Kong have never been able to decide for themselves what their government should look like and what their future should be. 
Now, the narrative, which has turned out to be a false narrative from Beijing, was that the people of Hong Kong would be able to maintain the freedoms that the British gave them, so freedom of the press, for example, and that they would be autonomous, that they would be treated differently legally and politically and economically and otherwise from the rest of the People's Republic of China. And at the same time, the government in Beijing told Taiwan that they could have a similar deal, that Taiwan would have to agree to surrender its sovereignty as an independent country, which again, it has been since Chiang Kai-shek's government moved there in late 1949, but that even though they, they would lose that, that you know, the international standing or the international freedom of action that they have, that they would still be able to maintain some of their basic freedoms and that you would have a one country, two government scenario. Well, of course, for Taiwan, that was not appealing at all because Taiwan had exercised total independence and sovereignty. I mean, Taiwan has its own military, uh, its own foreign ministry. It, it is a country and it has acted just like a country for 70 years. So Taiwan had a seat at the United Nations for uh, about 30 years. And it wasn't until 1979 that it, uh, well, actually they lost their seat at the UN in the early 1970s and then they lost support from the United States diplomatically in 1979. But even after that, they were able to maintain a few dozen diplomatic allies. These tended to be smaller countries, for example, the Vatican, countries in Central America. The Vatican is the only sovereign territory in Europe that actually recognizes Taiwan. Is that right? Yes, that's right. The Vatican is the only country in Europe to recognize Taiwan. And so what, what China is asking Taiwan now is to surrender that, to surrender all freedom, all sovereignty, and just to trust that the Chinese Communist Party will treat Taiwan fairly and as some kind of a semi-autonomous, basically a colony or province of the People's Republic of China. Well, in Taiwan, you know, they've seen what that has meant for Hong Kong. They've also seen what it's meant for Tibet. Tibet is also supposed to be an autonomous part uh, or semi-autonomous part of the People's Republic of China. Xinjiang is also meant to be autonomous. The Hui Muslim area in Ningxia province, for example, is also meant to be semi-autonomous. Well, if you visit some of those places in China, what you'll see is that not only are they not autonomous in any way, shape, or form, those areas are actually repressed to a far greater degree than, than any other place in China. I mean, you walk around Xinjiang or Ningxia, for example, even back in 2004, when I was there, you could see them bulldozing mosques and you could see them riding around in military style armored personnel vehicles with with troops uh, carrying machine guns and bazookas. It was very oppressive. You could tell you were in a police state. It didn't feel that way in Shanghai or Beijing, for example, or in Chongqing, but you definitely felt that way out there. And I, I don't think anybody in Taiwan now is under any illusion of what it would mean for them to actually accept some kind of compromise with Beijing and to allow the, their fate to start to mirror the fate of Hong Kong. Because what, what that would mean for Taiwan would be obviously be very dire. Well, that also kind of raises the question of what sort of illusion were US policymakers under in the early 2000s, even in the, you could say in the 1990s, but certainly by the time they were bulldozing mosques, as you say, and things in Xinjiang have gotten much worse. I mean, the New York Times published those leaked internal Chinese documents about this time last year. And many reports have come out since about concentration camps and reports of forced organ harvesting and a lot of... It's difficult to really comprehend what you're reading about that region. I mean, how does a regular person wrap his or her mind around the reports that are coming out of Xinjiang? Well, you can. I mean, I mean, is it like, I, I don't really want to reach for analogies and metaphors because they're always imperfect and it's so easy to reach for this one, but I'm going to reach for it anyway. How similar is this to what was going on in Nazi Germany prior to 1938? Well, I think it's very similar. I think that that's, as you say, it's an imperfect analogy, but it's the closest that we have 
and the democracies of the world are reacting almost exactly the same as they did back in the late 1930s, almost to a T, that here we have a dictatorship, which is whether it's a communist dictatorship or a fascist dictatorship, that is engaging in massive human rights atrocities, but all of its neighbors are so afraid of being attacked by it, and they're so afraid of losing their economic linkages, because Nazi Germany in the 1930s was an economic powerhouse. They had a lot of influence on the world stage. I mean, they hosted the Olympics in the 1930s, for example. Yeah, and they were the first host nation to broadcast the Olympics on television. They were. They were known for their being very technologically advanced, very scientifically advanced. I mean, Albert Einstein came from Germany, right? He defected essentially to the United States from Nazi Germany. And of course, he was one of the most brilliant men on the planet at the time. And it's very possible that today some of the most brilliant minds in the world live in the People's Republic of China. And certainly their trade and economic policies have been absolutely stunning. They have very much impressed Wall Street. They've impressed Silicon Valley. They've impressed you know, entrepreneurs and economists the world over. And everyone is afraid of losing their access to China, to the talent that's there, to the potential opportunity that's there. And so they've really turned a blind eye to this massive human rights atrocity that is unfolding before us and they've actually allowed their governments to stay silent. And they've encouraged their governments to stay silent. And so there's this sort of moral corruption that has taken place there. And at the same time, there's also fear. Everybody that deals with China is afraid of a war breaking out with China. Nobody wants to get attacked. India doesn't want to be attacked. Japan doesn't want to be attacked. Taiwan doesn't want to be attacked. And, and we, of course, don't want to be attacked. And there are threats that are very vocal, they're very regular, and they're very sinister that if we don't do what the Chinese Communist Party wants us to do, if we, if we don't work hard to maintain a good relationship with Beijing, if we're too critical of them, then they could attack us. And so I think that's also had a, a sort of a silencing effect on people. It's that, that mix of positive and negative incentives, that type of coercion, and it's proved remarkably effective. And it's really chilling to see how this is playing itself out. Well, that's one thing I want to ask you about, which is that not just with Taiwan, of course, we're here to talk about Taiwan, and the PLA has stepped up operations in the strait. And not just with Taiwan, though, again, like with the Philippines, with Japan, with India, they seem to be pushing boundaries, pushing borders, testing limits, testing internationally recognized zones. And on top of that, I saw a recent report that came out by the Pentagon that says that China now has the largest navy, larger navy than the United States, which I think will shock most people. I assume that doesn't include Blue Water Navy, correct? No, actually, what's even more shocking is it includes both Blue Water Navy and you say Green Water Navy. So not only is their gray hole Navy, their traditional Navy, larger in terms of, of number of ships than the United States Navy, they have about 350 and we have less than 300, about 390, or excuse me, 290. Their Coast Guard is way bigger than our Coast Guard or any other Coast Guard in the world as well. And they also have a third branch, and that's their maritime militia. So all of the fishing boats, transport ships, ferries, everything that goes to sea that's 50 tons or above is all registered with the military. And they, many of those uh, ship captains and the crews actually get military training and we've seen them be used in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and now also in the Taiwan Strait to actually serve as a civilianized arm of the military because they don't wear uniforms. Of course, these, in many cases, these are fishing boats. Like li the uh, little green men under, of Crimea. Yeah, it, the little green men of Crimea in the South China Sea, so that often they're now called the little blue men. And Professor Andrew Erickson, for example, the Naval War College has done some fantastic research on this and, and writing on it. He was the first to expose it. And when you read some of that, it's just incredible. And it's incredible to think that the United States government has until recently stood by and done very little as China built up 
the largest Navy on the planet and the largest Coast Guard on the planet, which is using to harass all of its neighbors and push out the boundaries of its maritime territory. And then also to militarize its fishing fleet and its civilian transport well, that, that fleet. That was one of the examples I was going to ask you about, which was the case of Scarborough Shoal in 2012, which was a case where Chinese commercial vessels were basically fishing in Filipino waters. Um, and that really went undefended or unresponded to by the US. And now, the, as I understand it, the Chinese Navy basically occupies that territory. Yeah, that's correct. And in fact, it's even worse than that. What happened is the United States government brokered a deal between our ally, the government in the Philippines, and the People's Republic of China, brokered a deal, set a time and place for the standoff to end, for the navies of China and the Philippines to leave Scarborough Shoal. And the government in the Philippines actually honored the deal and the Chinese didn't. Yeah. They stayed and they occupied it. And when they did that, when they broke the deal, the U.S. did nothing and just allowed them to, to take it over. And so they've made, really, they've made de facto, they've, they've maintained that control to this day. And it's really put a lot of stress on uh, the U.S. relationship with the Philippines. So let's, this. I think we've done a good job of setting a background here uh, and giving people a sense of both the history and the significance and severity of the issue here. I think it would be a good time to pivot into a more specific conversation about invasion scenarios of Taiwan, pretty much what your book describes, and also rope in at all times the United States and its Asian partners into these conversations to think about how all of these different pieces interconnect. Because again, the point about the Navy, I just, I was shocked to read that. I mean, I knew that China had made enormous progress in all sorts of different areas of both conventional and unconventional warfare and in, in building its military capabilities. But that really was a bit of a shock to me. And of course, they what's that saying in military circles, quantity has a quality all its own. But I wonder also to what degree that's reflective of, of Navy capability. The Chinese are adept and have been adept at at quantity. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how they built their, their industrial machine. But let's talk about what's been going on in, in the Taiwan Strait and with Taiwan and China in recent years in particular, because it seems that as we talked about, the aggression towards Taiwan has escalated as part of a larger testing of boundaries on the part of the CCP. How real is the prospect of an invasion of Taiwan today? Well, I don't think it's going to happen today, and I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but I, I do think the risk is very real that it will happen in our lifetime, and it could happen in the foreseeable future, the near future. I mean, this could happen in the next five years, that we are watching China build up its military for this precise operation. And, and we know that because you can read Chinese military studies, the, the PLA's People's Liberation Army's uh, doctrinal studies, the course books that they've written for their National Defense University and their Army Command Academies and their Space Command Academies and, and their Naval Command Academies and all the technical studies they've done going back uh, over the past several decades. And they've always been focused like a laser beam on Taiwan. I mean, it's the number one mission of the People's Liberation Army is to invade and occupy Taiwan and to do it in a way that, that either deters the United States and other countries from coming to Taiwan's defense or defeats them in the event that deterrence fails. And so you can go back and you can read what they've written and then you can watch what they've actually done about it. And it's amazing. They have engaged in an absolutely stunning military buildup. And they've done it in a way that is directly relevant for a future invasion operation of Taiwan. And they've also done it in a way that has minimized international reaction. So Taiwan has not done very much to change its defensive posture. The United States has not done very much to change its defensive posture. Japan, which also has a tremendous stake in the outcome of this issue, has not done very much to change its posture. That all of the democracies are essentially standing still. We're still maintaining the forces that we had in the region 20 years ago. 
Now they're getting some updates. So the old, you know, F-16s and F-15s in Japan are now becoming F-22s and F-35, the stealth, the new stealth fighter, fifth generation fighter. But the numbers are about the same. The old ships that we have in the Seventh Fleet, which is based in Tokyo Bay. We still have the same number of ships are getting some updates, but it's basically the same fleet that we've always had. The same is true for Taiwan, that they're updating their army, they're updating their navy, they're updating their air force, but they're not growing it. In some ways, they're shrinking it over time. And so the reaction from the democracies has been pretty subdued when you look at this massive buildup that's going on uh, across the Taiwan Strait. And it's becoming increasingly clear that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party do actually intend to do what they say and what they've long said they were going to do, and that's to actually take Taiwan. And if they can't do it through coercion, if they can't do it through you know, economic infiltration and through acts of covert action, that they'll do it through use of armed force and, and full-out invasion. And so there's now that the balance of power has shifted so significantly in China's favor, there really is an increasing risk that that is going to tempt, that's going to tempt tragedy. So I read, uh, you talk about this in the book as well, but I also read another report, I think it was, went back a year ago by Robert Work and Greg Grant, and it wasn't focused on Taiwan, about the, uh, among other things, the missile capabilities that the CCP has invested in, or the PLA has invested in, or both. I don't know how you would that's the other difficult thing about about talking about China. It doesn't fit into the normal buckets that we think about when we think about Western policy, or even you know the commercial sector and its relationship to the government. Can you talk to me a little bit about that specifically about the investments they've made in missile technology? How significant is that? Because to my understanding, the decision to invest so heavily in upgrading their missile systems and capabilities was in direct response to the United States' presence in the region. And it's been done with the goal of blunting the U.S.'s ability to project power in the South China Sea, and that feeds directly into any conflict with Taiwan. It does. So what happened toward the, the end of the Cold War in 1987 was the United States and the Soviet Union signed the INF Treaty, the, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, and what it said was that ballistic missiles and land-based cruise missiles of a certain range, so over, I believe it was 300 miles in range, between 300 and 5,500 miles in range, that those were destabilizing. And all the war games that we ran, all the war games that the Soviet Union ran, saw that those were destabilizing. Because when you have missiles of that type, whether they're armed with nuclear weapons or not, you can't tell that, of course, on radar. And so you have to assume that they are, that there's so little warning time that the other side has that things can very quickly escalate out of control. And so it was actually one of the greatest things that came out of the Cold War was that the United States and the Soviet Union both agreed to dismantle their INF applicable missile forces, and they did. And it was very good for strategic stability in Europe. Now, after the Cold War was over, it wasn't very long before the People's Republic of China saw that this was going on, and they saw an opportunity, and they seized upon it, that in the early 1990s, they stood up their first ballistic missile force of short-range ballistic missiles, the, the DF-11, and then shortly thereafter, the DF-15. It actually could be the other way around. I forget if it was the DF-11 and the DF-15 that came out first. But what happened is they saw an opportunity there. They saw that ballistic missiles and then land-based cruise missiles were very effective tools of coercion, that they scared people, and that China was not limited by international law the way the United States and the Soviets. And then later, actually, all the former Soviet countries including Russia, maintained their commitment under the INF Treaty. And China saw that they had no commitment, and then they could build up a massive force of these offensive destabilizing missiles, and that would give them a very significant advantage over the United States and over Taiwan in any future scenario. And it has. 
it has significantly shifted the balance of power in China's direction. And it's done so in a, in a way that's very destabilizing because today we have very large Air Force bases in Guam, Anderson Air Force Base, and also in Okinawa, Kadena, which is our largest Air Force base on foreign soil. And they are under that threat umbrella. And at any time, with very little warning, China could shower them with ballistic missiles and with land-based cruise missiles. They could do the same, of course, to Taiwan's air bases. Well, once you have your air bases pummeled by ballistic missiles and cruise missiles, and, and now we're going into an era of attack drones, swarming attack drones with very long ranges, and we're also going into an area of, of hypersonic missiles, which are even faster. So they go 5, 10, times. The Russians have times. been developing those as well, right? In fact, I think, they they're, have, they're, absolutely. I think they're on the frontier of that development. They're ahead of even the, the People's Republic of China, no? Well, I don't know. I think it's, it's difficult without having access to, to satellite imagery and, and signals intelligence to watch some of the tests. It's, it's t- tough to say mm. who's ahead. But certainly Russia has invested heavily in that. And actually, Russia, over the past 20 years, has done a lot of backsliding on its INF treaty commitments, which is why... Recently, Washington announced that it was no longer going to be beholden to the INF Treaty, that it no longer uh, had any force because Russia had, had broken all of its treaty commitments. The U.S. had seen that, that China was not beholden to it. And so we were only going to be at a deeper and deeper disadvantage over time if we did not ourselves start to develop feeder missiles. So those are the ballistic missiles and the land-based cruise missiles that have have those ranges, the, the short, medium, and intermediate ranges. And so we've actually gotten out of it because of that. So I also have some philosophical questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to hold off on them. They're kind of, maybe we'll get into them in the overtime, but they're related to, you know, why is this happening? Is this just an inevitable result of a kind of a realist view of foreign policy that that as these countries rise economically, well, maybe not the case with Russia, but certainly with China, that it's just inevitable that they're going to test these boundaries and they're going to want to assert themselves. But let's hold off on that one. I want to ask you one more question before we switch it into the overtime, where I, I really do want to continue discussion the, the subject of your book. On the point about Taiwan and, and invasion scenarios and this and that, I mean, when I said today, I didn't really mean this very moment, but some of the estimates I've seen have been that sometime in the next 10 years, I think it's actually was maybe I'm thinking of a Captain Captain, Captain Fennell. Fennell, the former director of intelligence and information operations for the U.S. Pacific Fleet. He says that between 2020 and 2030 is the riskiest time for a breakout of conflict in the South China Sea, and he that has something to do with 2049. So you're you're probably the best person to to point me to that. But what would be some early indicators for knowing when we might be getting close to such an event? Well, Dimitri, what what I worry about right now is that we're already starting to see some of those early indicators. So just this past weekend, there was a launch of an unannounced launch of two satellites from China. That follows on an incident not long ago, just a, a few weeks ago, where they did that as well. And so we're starting to see these launches of intelligence gathering satellites or reconnaissance satellites from China that were unannounced. Generally, before a satellite launch, the government will announce a, a closure area for aircraft to avoid. There'll be notices that are posted. When they start to do satellite launches that are secret, that are unannounced, and then it's just a surprise for everybody when they happen, and you can tell that those are reconnaissance satellites, that's a warning sign. Another warning sign is when you have hyper-nationalistic propaganda messages, really sort of bloody-minded, really aggressive propaganda messages coming from the Central Propaganda Department of the Chinese Communist Party directed at Taiwan. That's something that we've also seen recently, where they've said that the Taiwan Strait median line no longer applies. The Taiwan Strait center line no longer applies. They've threatened to kill the president of Taiwan. They've said that they would wipe her out. So that they're making these really bombastic, really radical statements of policy. 
And the messaging has been really remarkable, very different than what you would have seen just a year ago. We've also seen a lot of air and maritime activity around Taiwan. We've seen reports of increased intelligence collection against Taiwan, which is also what you would expect to see happen before a crisis or even a, a full-on invasion. And we've also seen a lot of activity with China's maritime militia. So a lot of uh, Taiwan's uh, outer islands, some of those small islands that they have just off the coast of the PRC, are being harassed now by Chinese maritime militia. That for Jinmen, for example, and more recently Matsu, that's also something that you would start to expect before a major crisis breaks out. So a lot is going on now. There's also a, a widespread militarization of Chinese society. There's a mobilization of private industry or, or what people previously thought of as private companies, even though they're in many ways controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, it's becoming even more clear now that those are not private companies, that they serve not only the Chinese Communist Party itself politically for political ends, but they also serve the People's Liberation Army for military ends. And so there's this massive militarization of, of Chinese society that we're seeing right now. What we have not yet seen are acts of sabotage directed at Taiwan. There have been some reports of smuggling, gun smuggling and other things that you might expect to see before an armed attack. But happily, so far, there have been no assassination attempts of any of the key leaders. There's been no abductions. There have been no riots in the streets of Taiwan. There have been no cyber attacks, or at least no very successful overt cyber attacks that, that knocked out the, the power grid or the banking system, for example. There have been no cuttings of the, the telecommunication cables that link Taiwan to the United States and other countries, for example. These are some of the other things that you would expect to see in the run-up to war. You'd also expect to see reservists be mobilized in China. You'd expect to see very large assemblies of amphibious assault craft and other transport vessels in Xiamen and Fuzhou and, and other port cities across from Taiwan. To my knowledge, that has not happened yet. And so there's still reason to think that an invasion is not coming tomorrow and it's not coming the day after that. But there are certainly some worrying signs that we are seeing. And uh, there's good reason for much greater vigilance on the part of Washington and I think on the part of Taiwan, of course, and Japan and other countries in the region, because there are some of the warning signs that are already there. We're starting to already see this play out. And uh, I think that's something we need to keep tracking. And of course, that doesn't take into account the possibility of a mistake. Something can happen that can lead to an invasion or lead to war that wasn't intended. And that kind of leads us to a question about the different types of policies. One is, how has policy towards China and Taiwan shifted under the Trump administration? Something we didn't have a chance to talk about yet, but I want to ask you in the overtime, how it might change under a Biden administration as we're a month away from a presidential election. And also, you know, there was, I mean, a lot of things. Something else that just came to my mind is that Richard Haas and David Sachs had recently wrote an opinion piece for Foreign Affairs magazine that got a lot of kind of intellectual blowback from people that disagreed with Haas and, and Sachs. And, and it had to do with this idea of strategic clarity versus strategic ambiguity. And what we've had in the Taiwan Strait all of these years is strategic ambiguity, purposefully so. And so I'd like to ask, also ask you about that and whether you think that that they made a good case for a U.S. security guarantee for Taiwan, if that's something that you think would actually bring more stability to the region or if it would actually potentially ignite a breakout in hostilities. For anyone who is new to the program, Hidden Forces is listener supported. If you want access to the second hour of my conversation with Ian, as well as the transcript and rundown to this episode and every other episode we've ever done, head over to patreon.com slash hidden forces. There's also a link in the summary page to this episode with instructions on how to connect the overtime feed to your phone so that you can listen to these extra discussions just like you listen to the regular podcast. Ian, stick around. We're going to move the second half of our conversation into the subscriber overtime. Will do. Today's episode of Hidden Forces was recorded in New York City. 
For more information about this week's episode, or if you want easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you want access to overtime segments, episode transcripts, and show rundowns full of links and detailed information related to each and every episode, check out our premium subscription available through the Hidden Forces website or through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hidden forces. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stylianos Nicolaou. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. Join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hidden Forces Pod, or send me an email at dk at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.